Good morning, Brother John. Good morning, Brother Jerry. What's your weather like up there? 35, going to get up to 55, uh, sunny, going to have our last little splash of uh, warm weather the beginning of the week. We're expected up to 60 on on Monday, but watch out by the time we get to Friday. Yeah, and then that's coming down here. We're getting it too. Right now, 50s. We're pretty mild. We're... And We're in good shape. it while you can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it gets way into the 70s, almost the 80s during the day when the sun's out. So this is like pretty typical Austin weather. None of it's too surprising. But the real surprising thing is, uh, as you know, John, I just completed my Midwest tour, uh, mm, visiting you yeah. for a while in Chicago, and then Mom and Jeff in, in St. Louis. And uh, carting around all my equipment with me and everything. And finally, when I got home, I think my body said, okay, you've had enough. And man, I have been pretty much laid up with a very, very bad back. So the answer to the question this morning is, what are you wearing? I am virtually just about wearing nothing but a t-shirt. I'm wearing the original, but uh, because of the weather and my need to, my, and my, yeah, no, I'm, because the you got the original. You got the original. Original. Oh and wow! The need for me to keep my heat off, uh, so I don't create a uh, a sound background. Yeah, background sound. I, we uh, got to take I've care of that. I got my hoodie on and my hat. Wow! Yeah, I I turned off my hot flash fan, which is what I use to uh, subdue my hot flashes. But yeah, I'm not. I haven't worn any pants for four days. Uh, the uh, belt line of a pair of pants and it doesn't matter how loose they are always screws with my back so yeah i can't yeah i am literally you know doing what we kid about <laughs> wow but, yeah yeah i know i know now you know in in lieu of uh, uh, or i should say in in view of <laughs> what we're going to be talking about today i'm i'm uh, i'm viewing our bro show t-shirts as religious relics mm. uh, Hmm? You think? Yes. What do you think? Hey, with the show we've got in front of us, that's the way to fly. That's the way to fly. So if you guys need a a, a bro show religious relic, it is these t-shirts. And I'm wearing Clark Street uh, Ale House today, which is a limited edition, rare shirt. And uh, folks in the know uh, have got that t-shirt, and I'm proud to be wearing it. And I encourage everyone to go to shirt.bro.show. If you want to get one of these fine t-shirts or just go to bro.show, our site where all our podcasts live, and um, you can get one from there too. So there you are. That's what we're wearing. That's the weather. And we are ready to begin a show. Oh, and What a show. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, Prelude, I'm a, my, it's my honor and privilege to introduce a topic that my brother John turned me on to some while ago. Um, and this really, this is something we both really resonate with. It's a book about baseball, the sacred nature of baseball as a path to God. And wow, this is a blockbuster. And I have a good idea how you got here, John, but I want you to share that with the folks listening. Well, the, the book, uh, called baseball as a road to God by Dr. Uh, John Sexton came out back in 2013, 
And uh, I saw it when it came out. It didn't uh, pique my interest. I said, just a, it's a, there's been several of these type of books out before. Um, some of them have more baseball than others. But as I, uh, it, as it was in the, my background, uh, you know, kind of sitting way in the back, I realized that things were happening to me that were making me get closer. We're, we're, we're just reaching out for me to, 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 to break, embrace this book. And a couple of things happened. One was that I had a, an opportunity to meet a, uh, an English professor, head of the English department at Bradley University, retired, uh, Jim Ballou, and found out that Jim and I had a common interest, was, which was the Cardinals. But he was more impressed with the fact that I knew his childhood friend, Robert Coover. And Robert Coover was the, uh, wrote a book called Universal Baseball Association. It's a fiction book, deals with an accountant, and we've talked about it a little bit before. And the fact is that there is sort of a mystic quality to this book. It's, ba it, it's life through baseball, uh, and, and, and what it does is it talks about an accountant who, who ends up baseball actually encompasses his whole life. It actually swallows him so that his mm -hmm. reality becomes baseball. And he becomes mm -hmm. God in a way because he has a game in which he can uh, make or break, uh, you know, players' performance. In addition to the fact that eventually he learns that he can cause life or death. So um, that's that was the kind of deep road I was going, the dark road I was going down. Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. Um, and then what I what happened was that I decided about a year ago to read that book again. I'd read uh -huh. it, and I knew all about the fact that, you know, when somebody says to Universal Baseball Association, somebody says, oh, yeah, I know that book. That's the one where the account goes nuts, and when one of the ball players because of his throw, throw of the die, ends up, uh, ends up kill getting killed. And I said, yeah, but there is so much more to it. So here I am, a book that, I, that was written in the late 60s, early 70s that I probably read in the 80s. I revisited it. And as I revisited mm. this book just a year ago, I, um, I, I all of a sudden, uh, you know how you do, you'll, you'll hit a link or something that, and all of a sudden I ran into a, into James John Sexton, who had developed a course, uh, called Baseball as a Road to God. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and sure enough, he was using as part of his curriculum was this book, Universal Baseball Association. So I have this path. This is kind of a direct path, but as I reflect back, quite often my feelings about baseball and how I approached baseball was more than just the game itself, more than the facts and figures. And yeah. certain phrases I would use kind of gave me a clue as to where I was going. Quite often people would say to me, they get disappointed after a game, and I'd say, don't dwell on what baseball doesn't give you. Embrace what it does. Mm. I thought, mm. why do I say that? And why do I say things like anything can happen in baseball? Right. Uh, you say that a lot. I, you know, I say that a lot. So these things were happening and, you know, they're during my life. And then I look back at the losses I'd had in baseball in terms of losing teams. And I realized that I kind of had, I felt loss for a team I never saw, the St. Louis Browns. It was a, it was a tremendous loss to me. And I yeah, it was. On my, yeah. <clears throat> so I reflected on how I was able to process that loss and through my life, the various uh, ups and downs of baseball and realized that uh, and looked at this book and did the interview and realized 
this is this is this is a path I'm taking. Uh, baseball is a road to God, and yeah, and you're already also, on it. Yeah, I'm on the road. And the other thing I realized is that I look back on my uh, attitudes and my experiences with organized religion. I'd been a member of a church in Berwyn. I'd been a member of a church when I was a, a kid. We went to church with my mom. And there was always something about organized religion. And even after I got married, and both my wife and I experienced the same thing. It seemed like organized churches took the religion out of it. It just seemed like yep. it was too much of a social event rather than learning uh, how to, to, to process and, and, and understand what was going around you, it, 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 and that kind of turned me off. So put all these pieces together, and I was ripe and ready for baseball as a road to God. Yeah, um, and I think there's, there's one other element, too, that plays into this, too, and that's our father. Uh, Pop, just he refused to ever sing a hymn in church. He only went to church under uh, duress, and, uh, you know, he, he was not... Uh, well, he said he was an agnostic. So, and I think, but everyone would say he had passions. He had certain passions that were not organized religion that took the place of it in his life. The Masons were right. something like that for him right. for a long time, and other things like that. And so, you know, and also civil rights and his standing up for poor people and black people and stuff like that. That's something he did that was kind of uncharacteristic of a Republican businessman. But, you know, he, and he left a, he left a impression on me, certainly, and I'm sure he left an impression on you. Yeah. So it made it easier for both of us to, uh, feel okay about, uh, I wouldn't say turning our backs on organized religion, but at least, uh, thinking about it and being willing to look other places for what we wanted because we wanted an active living, uh, I wouldn't even call it a faith. It, it's it's an experience. I was chasing ex an experience, and I think you kind of were too. And right. he talks about the role of experience in in any kind of sacred anything. And I think it's it's real super important. Now, the odd thing about this is our mother's still alive, and she still to this day wants to know if I'm a believer, and that that means do I follow Jesus Christ and and His Word and His communions and all that stuff and Wow. <laughs> you know, she's still at it. She's still trying to undo what Pop did, but too late. <laughs> yeah, and I think what we'll do is we'll delve a little bit into that as we take a look in, okay. at the book and talk about some of the chapters. And But it, it, just to kind of give a little bio on this, I, one of the things that attracted me was the, the, the incredible uh, pedigree or, or that the, the author has. Mm. He's a, yeah. he's a, a combination of, uh, he has a PhD in religion history. He has a JD in law. He uh, ended up taking the uh, educational, the academic route, becoming the uh, eventually teaching at New York University, becoming the dean of their law school, uh, making it one of the top five law schools in the country, and then was promoted to the ultimate within that university, became the president of that university. All and he's a serious though, Catholic. He's, he's also a Catholic. Catholic. He's a Catholic. Fordham University uh, is his is his uh, academic Alma background. Mm -hmm. So as a result, we have a man who uh, and uh, who has a deep passion for baseball and and centering around the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, 
so we, 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 so I was impressed by the fact that we have a, a man of, of, of high uh, intellect, high uh, academic standards, and also a strong Catholic. In other words, he has yep. a religion there. And yes. he's able to piece together the, this. And what he did is he developed a course out of it. Even as he was president of the university, this always, he always felt there was a need for him to be in the classroom. And yep. what, what happens here is, is not everybody likes baseball. Not everybody is going to be able to use this as a pathway to what they feel and what they want to experience. Mm -hmm. But it shows that, it, it demonstrates that we can go beyond the, what we would call the organized, formal routes of expressing our need for uh, religion through other means. And baseball yes. does provide that. And yes. so that, that I thought was very important. The other thing is that we, I think we need to kind of look and see what we feel and what I've always felt uh, about religion. And to me, religion is, it, there's a word that's throughout this book, ineffable. Ineffable mm -hmm. is, is, is something that is a, is, a, is a word that is used quite often to describe. And, um, and, and what it is, to me, is it's, you know that I don't care how far science goes, you know, to explain life. But the fact is that there's always going to be a core unknown. And that core unknown has obviously been here a while, and it's always mm -hmm. been here. And the fact is, how do we feel comfortable with that core? How do we reach the point where we're able to accept that, and how do we live with that? And so what I find ineffable, you know, that element of the unknown and our ability to accept it is, is so important, and feeling comfortable with it. So as we take a look at even organized religion, what do we have? We have a, we basically have a platform by which people feel comfortable with the, with the unknown, with what's, you yes. know, things such as, is there an afterlife or not? You know, yep. it isn't necessarily coming up with the answer, but coming, becoming comfortable with, you know, all of this as you have your daily life, you know, going through your daily life. Right. And so that to me was, uh, was the key core that was needed. Uh, that that was demonstrated in this in this book, so um, you know that's that's where I kind of uh, started with that, and mm -hmm. and and then what happens is that the book goes through nine chapters as in nine innings, and then <laughs> yep. demonstrates some of the the characteristics that we feel that are are out there that are important, you know, to it, and so uh, I, I felt that to demonstrate this. Uh, would be interested to take a look at a couple of chapters and how I kind of related to them and, sure, and, and sure. how the whole thing plays out. The first chapter is on sacred space and sacred time. And the fact is, as we take a look at baseball, uh, we know that there's sacred space. Uh, we don't call Wrigley yes. Field the baseball cathedral for nothing, but everybody nope. has their special feel. They, real, they remember the first time they walked through that gate and looked out onto the pastoral green that's out there. It's a mm. memory that's out there. It's a calmness. It's a setting. It's vivid. That, that, yeah, yeah. It's very. It's a very vivid uh, scenery uh, landscape that that one has in their in their mind. In addition to the fact that baseball has a sacred time, it it fits. You know, a rebirth every year as we go into spring. There's a new feeling. We all start again yep. at you know what. It's sort of like uh, you know we're all in first place that first day. Nobody's yeah, won. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Lost. Uh, so That's there's right. a renewal. It's a cycle. It has yeah. cycles. And That's so I like. I we like can that go through it. that. Yeah. 
and we can go through that process and we know that we end up that cycle. I have a little bit different perspective on it, but quite awful postseason World Series uh, is the, the finalization. And throughout the year, we have these various celebrations. They, they yeah. you know, uh, they could be the Hall of Fame induction because of, uh, you know, as we're taking a look at what we would maybe call the Saints of Baseball. And yes, the All-Star Game. And the All-Star Game is another good example of, of, of these various things that take place. Now, uh, my, my read on it, as I took a look at it, was that uh, I, I've been going to spring training since 1977. It's amazing how at the end of spring training, there's a period of exhaustion now. As you go through it, you say, gosh, am, am I going to do it again? But for some reason, come next March, I'm ready to rock. I'm ready to roll. <laughs> I'm on my way. I'm down to Florida. And, and the fact is that I, I just the whole setting of uh, the calmness, uh, you know, and that's the other thing about baseball as I took a look at my approach to it, is I always felt that baseball to me was, a, was, a, was a, uh, something as I looked at it, I said this could be viewed in a variety of ways. It could be viewed as a season. It could be reviewed as a game, one game. It could be reviewed as one inning. It could be reviewed uh -huh. as one bat. It could be one pitch. All of these kind of taking the layers off to allowing you to think and, and feel and appreciate the, the, the most minute aspects of the game. And I thought that was kind of important to me to feel the calmness and the serenity that baseball provided. Now, the other, so that, that's a little bit on that, that chapter. The other, the next chapter was on faith. Faith you know, being able to explain things, you know, have a, certain things happen in baseball, you just can't explain how they happen. Right. And uh, every, every person who's had a, an allegiance to a team has run into those moments where they just, you know, I, my, one of my expressions is anything can happen in baseball. And yeah. that, and what, what happens is you reach the point where something takes place where you can't explain it. I thought the, the illustration, which I'll just go into very briefly, was in 1988, um, um, there was a, in the World Series, the first game, there was a ball player by the name of Kirk Gibson who uh, was a hitter. There was the Dodgers who were playing the A's. And Kirk Gibson was in no condition to play. He was just hobbling around. There is no way that he could pretty get on the field, let, al let alone, you know, try to swing the bat. Well, Tommy Lasorda decided to keep him on the team because he felt that he had one swing in him that might make the difference. So wow. the, the book goes through the description of, uh, and then, of course, what does he do? What happens is we get into the ninth game, bottom of the ninth, and they're losing by a run or two, and there's a couple of guys on base. And Tommy goes to the clubhouse and says, Kirk. Seventh game, this right? Is the no, it wasn't. It was the first game of the World Series. Oh, first. I very said first ninth. game. No, no, I'm sorry. It was the ninth inning. Ah, okay. So, uh, he get, so the fact is that, Kirk realizes that he's only got really one probably good swing left in his body. And he wow. gets up there, and he kind of goes back and digests all the information he remembers through scouting reports, situations, etc. He's going against, the, at the time, the best relief pitcher in baseball, Dennis Eckersley. This is 1988. And sure enough, he gets the one pitch he's expecting based upon scouting reports. He puts some good lumber on it, and before you know it, you've got a walk-off home run. 
Wow. And you just look at it and say, this is, how does this even happen? And, uh, yeah, yeah and so break that down example. for a second. You got to break that down because, I mean, there's all kinds of things of a sacred nature that happen here. One is his self knowledge and his ability to kind of review everything he knew about this pitcher and he knew the pitch he was looking for. But the real cool thing is the manager who had the vision, had a vision, if you will, that this guy was important and at some point he would play a role. And kept him on the team. Didn't put him. Didn't put him on the DL. So there you go. And That's kind of that cool. That manager happened to be a guy by the name of Tommy Lasorda, who he says, "I bleed Dodger blue." I mean, <laughs> the, the, his fabric is. He's all. He's all Dodger. So you've got a guy. You're right. The, True the believer. fact that he's he had a believer there in that regard. So. Mm. This is an example, and we can all, I mean, I can go back and take a look at, at my moments as a Cardinal fan, where we have, uh, where that happens. Uh, yeah. On the other side of it, you know, we have doubt. Religion yeah. is always going to test you. And what happens through those tests, those tests will make you stronger in terms of your faith. I think if you were a Cubs fan or a Red Sox fan, you would yeah. have been severely tested. Um, oh, yeah. All the heartbreaks, the, the, the Bartman ball, the Billy Goat for the Cubs, uh, you know, the, 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 the curse of Bambino, Babe Ruth for the Red Sox. On the Red Sox, yeah. Their whole history has been, has been a situation where, where there's always been a lot of trial and tribulation and a constant testing. Brooklyn Dodgers, which is the Dr. Sexton's yeah. team, didn't win a World Series to 1955. A lot of heartbreak went in. To get to that point, um, so I think that the 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 role that doubt plays in the strengthening of one's faith is is important because as we take a look at life and we try to understand what's going on and we resign ourselves to the fact that there are certain things there's this unknown that we can't we realize we're going to run into these trials that are going to uh, test our faith. And I think that that's a, a very important part of, uh, of the exercise. And it's, it, the, the Cubs fate was tested to the very end. Uh, the yep. year they won finally in 2016. Uh, you take a look at the seventh game. They had set it all up where the most dominating reliever at the, uh, at the time, a guy named uh, Arnoldus Chapman was called upon to come in the game. And what does he do? He gives up a game-tying home run, and the Cubs have to go that extra inning to win. This is an example of where you have doubt, you, and you say, is this going to happen again? But you yeah. then are able to work through it, and eventually they, they won. So I thought that that was a, a, a real, real important thing as, as we take a look at it. Uh, another thing that I talk about is, that's in the book is conversion. Yeah, and Conversion... Yeah is where, you know, we know in religion that quite often, as we've talked about, Jerry, there's, you know, we've, yeah. we've had different points where we've bounced around and tested ourselves with different times of religion and tried to feel comfortable. Yep. Some people, yeah. and some people lose their faith and have to regain it. Well, conversion has been real big. The biggest one that you can sense here with conversion is the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I still yeah. don't like the Dodgers because of the fact that they left Brooklyn. A um, lot of people and don't. <laughs> so what happens is you have to work on what you're going to do in terms of that. And a lot of people 
um, in the book, uh, Dor Doris Kearns Goodwin, who wrote the foreword, she, she lost her religion. She lost baseball. For eight years. For eight years. Yeah. Um, Dr. John, there's, lost there's, all, there's, all, there's almost another form of it, too. Like, uh, there, there's a kind of uh, need to re, re, become reborn again after the end of a season, too, because it's all over and there's this dead space. And, and so, and also, uh, I'm thinking about the Cubs fans and also the Brooklyn Dodgers in 55. How did they feel after that win? I mean, wasn't part of their identity destroyed? Well, the fact fact is that there is a uh, there is a sense of law of of, of of you've accomplished something, and there's a there, now there, what? You, 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 there's a euphoria that uh -huh. is quickly uh, followed up with a sense of loss or hollowness. Yeah, I, I'm visualizing yeah. I'm visualizing I'm visualizing Dustin Hoffman in the back of that bus with Elaine. Right, he yeah. got her out of there. Now yeah. what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, in real life, we my favorite thing to talk about in real life is uh -huh. nothing's the, the nothing feels greater than that job that's out there that you want to get, and you go yeah. through the process, you get the offer, and you accept it, and yeah. then all of a uh -huh. sudden you realize, wait a minute, can I do this? I, gonna, I gotta do this now. <laughs> that went, that's no fun. The fun was getting the job, not doing it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And quite and quite often, in fact, there was a, uh, a, a Connie Mack, um, a manager, felt that kind of so somebody said to him, uh, "Mr. Mack, where do you think? When do you feel the best about your club? And when do you feel you know the, the, the most positive about?" It? He says, "I feel the most positive when we're like the runner-up, when we're in second place, when we're in third place, when I still ah. see you know the, the the prize there in front of me." Because once yeah. you get it, it's sort of like another saying in baseball is once you become number one, eventually there's only one other place you can go, and that's you got to go down. It yep. happens. Nobody lasts forever. Oh. And that's all only part of this. It, yeah, it, it, it's all part of the ups and downs. It's the fact that there's a sense of finality uh, you know, to life and what goes on after it and the rebirth. Um, all of these things play into to how you feel about it. So... That was that was real important to me with respect to conversion, but I one of the things about conversion and the other thing that happened to me in terms of baseball was I found myself not as interested in club allegiance, in other words, my team, the Cardinals, as following the game itself. To the extent that I found I was enjoying games more in which my team was not playing, I found myself enjoying games more where really even the result of the game wasn't that important as in sort of like the Arizona Fall League or Minor League Baseball. And the game itself and enjoying it and getting pleasure out of the uh, out of the out of that, out of the, the things that are happening on the field and occurrences yeah. was more important to me. So the book talks about the fact that your 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 use of baseball as a road doesn't have to necessarily you don't have to put your all your eggs in in the cub basket or into the cardinal basket no it's not a, a simple it's not a simple matter of faith in in a team no. uh it, sometimes it could be much more than that now the interesting thing about this is going to play into subsequent uh segments that we we have today is that this this uh sort of and i wouldn't even call it conversion it's more like a, a transforming uh where someone goes from being a partisan of a certain cause 
to a partisan and something much deeper. And you take the founders of the United States who wrote the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, all those great documents. They were humanists. They were not Christians. Mm -hmm. They believed in a God, but not in a particular God. So right. they, they were lovers of God, not lovers of Jesus or Buddha or anyone in particular. And because of that, they framed uh, the articles in a certain way that ensured religious freedom and separation of church and state so people could enjoy what they enjoyed and go through what they enjoyed, what they went through. And you did the same thing with baseball is that, you know, you are at a level now where you're, you're kind of, you know, you're a custodian and a, and a, uh, a keeper of baseball as a game, not, not a team. And believe me, cool. the team is a route you can go. And the fact is that I've learned easier. That the other thing is that, that it, that the team route, and the, you know, we have different, you know, respecting each person's religion is like respecting each other's team. I go, yeah. I'm a season ticket holder. People look at me and say, you're a Cardinal fan and you actually, you have season tickets to the Cubs. What, what, what are you doing? And yeah, you're, you're not fit. Well, you know, you don't fit. We were the, remember no, all I, that shit I got yeah. for wearing a wrong t-shirt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the fact is that what I do is, I'm will I I I would say to somebody, you know what? Yeah, the the simple answer I give to the fan to the to the regular fan is I say, you know what? They're playing some other team. So there's another team out there. It's not just the Cubs out there. There's another team. So I can. Uh, that's just the the short simple uh, answer. But the the fact is, it's not the team teams. It's the game. It's the game yeah. I enjoy. And that to me, I mean, my my greatest moments in baseball are on a Friday afternoon. And, and the other thing about baseball, baseball's timeless. They're, you know, the games yes, can go is. on forever. And nothing is, gives a greater thrill than to be out at Wrigley Field on a Friday afternoon when you've got, a, it's almost like an event uh, type of crowd because everybody is kind of letting loose for the weekend. But then the game ends up going into extra inning. And then you reach the, like, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and all of a sudden, all you were you were left with the core, the, the hardcore yeah. fans are left. You yeah. can hear the players on the field. You can hear you can hear conversations that make that are that make sense and <laughs> are really good about baseball in the ballpark. Yeah, and it, it, this is an event. Of course, you you, you your your mindset is oh, let's just do another inning, please. Let's just do one more inning. Oh wow! And it, 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 yeah, it, it, and so. It, it, it's that kind of setting that, that I really like. But well, what is that? that what is that? Let's look at that for a second, though. That's that's you're you're chasing an experience. You're not you're not yeah. uh, trying to get a number to come out of the game. Like I'm not looking the, for an end result. No, no, you're you're chasing the experience, which is, and I think that's a level of religion that people often overlook and don't even talk about because they can't. How do you describe religious experience? You can't. It's ineffable, right? So That's the ineffable it. and chasing that and, and going for it is probably, I think, the highest form of religion because it's not partisan. It's not parochial. It's, it is uh, inexpressible, but it's the driving force behind many people's lives. And it yeah. is for me. I mean, things like that's That's me. I go for the experience. So do you. And the fact that the fact is that what I think that kind of really brings home um, how baseball relates to all this is how you're able to translate 
baseball through your your life through other life experiences and i think the one that we've experienced that i think is more that really comes home with me is loss um, yes and the fact is that there is a lot of loss in, in baseball you could lose your team you could lose your ballpark you could lose your favorite player uh yep. you know there's a there's a there, there's a lot of loss and how do we digest loss the fact is that the way we digest loss, and somebody was asking, you know, you asked me when you lost your son, then not the, the, the anniversary, and as you're, you know, yeah. feeling it all, how did you digest the loss of your wife, my wife, Marge? Yeah, how did you process, and yeah. The, how the process is that you do it. How do you process loss? And baseball provides a really good example of that, and I, uh, and, and I don't think I would have been able to give this example if I hadn't really gotten this to this level in terms of uh, of my baseball experience and my feeling was that you're you, you know you have a tremendous grief you you feel an immediate loss you feel a need to have that person back in your life from the beginning but as you go through and you relive and you remember and you think about things about the person the longer you get away the what happens is that you end up having that person has a, a life of its own in your in your mind. Yeah, and that's you what idealize keeps them. you going. You idealize yeah. them to the extent that you realize at that point, well, somebody said, for example, a Doris Kearns Goodwin, today as we speak, would you like to have the Dodgers in Brooklyn? And she said, no, because there is no way that my memories, as I have fortified them throughout the year and, like, like you said, you know, kind of accentuated them to some extent, will ever be close to what they could be today. Yeah, it's and true. That's, the, that's, that's absolutely how you true. Die, that's how you process. You can process loss that way. So sure, yeah. there's always going to be a sense of loss, but it'll take on a different perspective. And it will, it'll have a positive a aspect to it. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. There, that's, There is. Yeah, I agree. I agree totally. Like, for instance, it's interesting to note that in many religious traditions, uh, like the in, in the Catholic religion, there's this making saints, right? Declaring someone a saint, they they have to perform a miracle, various other things. But the point is that this doesn't happen until after they're gone. And, of course, it's easier then, because what happens naturally after someone you love dies, you tend to forget their foibles and their, and their eccentricities and their rough spots. And they smooth out like a stone that's been in a stream for a real like, long time. And they gleam and they shine mm -hmm. and they're beautiful. And so right. it, it's easy and it's natural to, uh, uh, what is it, the be be uh, be uh, deification or, or wh whatever you want to call it. They, oh. be I don't know, there's a Beatitudes? really nice Catholic, no. okay. yeah, there's a ca nice Catholic word for it that I love. And so, yeah, it, and, and that seems natural. And also it happens, too, that if you, uh, I, I, one, uh, one fall I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is an incredible book. Don't be, be put off by the title. Almost anything you want to know about any Eastern religion and many of the Western ones you can find in that book. And one of the things they talk about is that um, the um, initiation into a religious sect uh, has to have uh, a saint-like figure who, uh, or they call him a, a master who has risen, an arisen master. And so that's one of the key things. And, and of course, in Hinduism, they have pujas. And that's what a puja is. Uh, is it, it's uh, making offerings 
to someone who was once, even recently, a human being and is no longer. And so you, you are doing that to share and transfer the knowledge or the beauty or whatever that person had to the initiate. And so there's a, there are mechanics to sharing an experience with another person. And what is talked about in this book is the, the mechanics of doing that with baseball. And this guy felt so confident. Sexton felt so confident about his course that people would say, I hate baseball. And, uh, you know, I don't see what it has to do with any of this stuff. And I think you've got a lot of nerve doing this course. And he would just say, uh, try the course and see what you think. Or just read, read, this, read, read these books. And at the end of reading these books, tell me that that's true. And other, uh, also in the book, some of his students had taken the course and who were quizzed by their fellow students said, what's the deal with this course? And they, to a person would say, I can't tell you. You have to experience it. There's no, Ineffable. there's no, there, yeah, it's ineffable. There, there, there is no punch list of things I can tell you you're going to get out of this because that's not what it's about. It's the experience. You will experience something if you take this course. And it's not about baseball. You'll be able to transfer that experience to your entire life and the rest of your life. So take the course. And you might kind of find the way it baseball, goes. You might find that baseball is not your platform, but you're going to learn a process. You're going to learn yes. how it's done through baseball, and you might find something else. It might be organized religion. It might be something very personal to you that's going to allow yep. you to, 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 to work through what you need to to understand the unknown. Uh, yeah. That, that, that yeah. to me, is the key. So, for example, right now, if the listeners are saying, well, I don't understand this, well, that's good because, you see, we can't explain it. <laughs> no, no, you can't. But, but you can say, what, what, what's the takeaways? You know, and that is yeah, the takeaway. Yeah. Is yeah. If, if you're ready to, uh, you know, I was taken in 1960, I guess it was 68, when uh, Jimi Hendrix hit the scene. And what was his signature first song? You know, have you ever been experienced? That was the, the line in the song. And, you know, it mystified me. For a long time, I would listen to it. And first of all, I wasn't attracted to the song because it's like a two-chord song. And I'm just going, well, what's the deal with this song? The more I listened to it, the more I got it, you know, what he's, where he's going with this thing. And he would, there's a part in the song where he goes, you know, he asks, have you ever been experienced? And he says, I have. And then he goes, let me show you. And what he does is he, he plays this incredible, I wouldn't even call it a guitar break. It's kind of like he's sharing an experience with you. And now this is not like an LSD experience or anything like that. And there's another line in the song that's good too, not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. And so he's, he's trying to give you that experience through his music. And if you listen to that music, it's unbelievable. It was unlike anything ever done before. He did things like take the pickups out of his guitar and wave them over the strings a certain way to get some of those sounds. He was a paratrooper. So he recreated the sound of the air rushing by you as you experience that bliss of free fall. He, he loved parachuting. And so yeah. you know, that's, it. that's in his music, you know. And so there's a guy transferring an experience. And that's what I got out of being a transcendental meditation teacher. I got to learn how to initiate people into that meditation. And I got much more out of the process of transferring the experience that you transfer when you initiate somebody than I got out of the practice itself. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, that's the real takeaway I got from it is you can do that. And that gave me a kind of faith and belief that I think has helped me get through you know, the loss of my son and, and stage four cancer is that I have gone other places 
now to find what I needed to find to fill the hole in my heart from my son not being there and to fix my, my body and mind from cancer. So I think this is incredibly practical stuff, regardless of how abstract it sounds. You need these experiences and you, you need to learn how to acquire them and then help others. The fact I'm, is here that this is not something that you, somebody that, that, that's force fed. I mean, things happen to me. Now, when I take a look at things as they happen in my life, as they relate to baseball, either in baseball or outside of baseball, I, 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 I can again gain a, a, a new acceptance of, of what's going on, a new understanding of, of what's going on. And that, that goes a long way to helping me uh, go, yeah. go through, like you said, life's challenges. Oh, uh, and they're there. Oh, yeah. They're it's more than object of... lessons, though. I mean, the easy takeaway here is object lessons or analogies. Uh, it's like this and that sort of thing. I think, you know, a lot of the, that's what I didn't like about Bull Durham. And I agreed with what Sexton had to say about that and, and others, where the, it was, it was kind of like, uh, uh, the, Annie, was that her name? The character yeah, surrounded Annie, by, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I felt like her tongue was partially in her cheek the whole time she was doing it. I didn't feel a, a true believer in her. And I thought she, she, cheap tricks, the rosary and the number of seams on a baseball, which isn't even true. And, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And I, I just didn't feel it. I, I didn't feel it. But reading this book, yeah, it was a little contrived. Although I loved the movie, what I did like was, you know, I liked, I liked uh, uh, the part, that the catcher, of course, you know. Yeah, Kevin and the pitcher. Role. Yeah, yeah, the dynamic between those guys was he was trying to transfer to the rookie right. the experience of baseball. Right, wasn't he? You yeah. know, he, he gave him what to say during the interviews and all that stuff. And he used a lot of tricks to get him out of himself and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, his comments, bring it, bring it, you know, bring that weak-ass cheese. When he would talk to the pitchers when he was batting, you know, there's a beautiful inner dialogue and that is sacred. I mean, baseball was sacred to the Kevin Costner character. And I, I imagine it is to Kevin Costner. He's played so many baseball players. Three. He's got, he's got a trilogy. Wow. But, uh... But the thing is that I think as we close this, we just need to take a look and say that, you know, we don't have bounds. We don't have, we don't have a dogma here. We have a, we have a, we have a way that we, that, that you, you need to feel comfortable with what you're doing and, and what's happening as it relates to how you want to explain certain things as they happen in life that can't be explained. How do you, how do you deal with that? And yeah. I've just, I've gradually, I mean, this is not something that just all of a sudden, you know, I, I, it took, it was a, it was a, a, a series of events that took place for me to get where I am right now. And I think oh, that yeah. as we take a look at our, our next segment, it, it's important that what happens in that segment is there is, we learn that there is, that, that re religion can't be compartmentalized. It, it, it can't be, you know, force fed onto people. Nope. It's something that naturally happens. The movie we're talking about is Joshua, and uh, I recommended this movie as a, for our movie segment, and, and John watched it, and I've watched this movie at least 12 times, and I, I never cease to be thrilled by it, and, uh, the, and it's a combination of things. I, I don't think it's any one thing that makes this movie great. I don't think it's the plot. I don't think it's the characters. I don't think it's uh, any anything that I can put my... It is ineffable. What I get out of this movie is totally ineffable. I get a, a, a sense, a feeling. Uh, uh, and I've met people. I've met Christians who are like Joshua. And 
they are they transcend their sect and they mm. are embodying what Christ really stood for and lived and they they are part of his life they're not part of a dogma they're not part of a right. set of rules and you know uh what i learned going to college well, the biggest thing i learned in college was i learned from bucky fuller and that is the rules come from principles if you learn the generalized principles then you understand the rules and can play the game but if you're just living on the rules and living by the rules you're not going to be in a very very effective player in the game you have to understand the generalized principles that underlie the rules where they came from and it's true also in in one of the core tenets in 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 uh Hinduism's uh, burning core, which is called like Advaita Vedanta, it's like the essence of what all the religions in in uh, India revolve around, and that is Shruti Smriti Prananam, and that means there is a truth that is ineffable, which is Shruti. You can it can cannot be said or or depicted in words or pictures. Then there is a truth, uh, uh, a Smriti, which is is a rule, a law, and then there's Prana. And that is stories, parables, analogies. So those are the three levels that people can experience religion on. And some people make it to the principal level, and they are they are great spokespeople for not only their religion but for humanity. And then there are people who are really good at the rules, and they're important too to keep crowd control, right? Keep keep chaos at a minimum. <laughs> and then lastly, there's the the pranas, the storytellers, and that's why we have movies and. And, and baseball and and everything that we have and and there are those three levels to everything and what's cool about this movie is you get to experience those three and uh tony goldman plays a character called joshua uh and that's supposed to be a more accurate depiction of his name because he's jesus and he came back on earth and he decided to hang out and so he goes to this community and if we're going to be accurate the real in aramaic he'd be called yeshua but Joshua's close enough. And so he does it, and wow, does he knock it out of the park. He plays the character perfectly. He's practical. He's down to earth. He's a carpenter. He loves doing woodwork for people. Uh, he deals with these different characters. Uh, what's interesting is that the people who play these, these Christian priests and, well, Catholic priests and Christian preachers and all this stuff, a lot of them are Jewish. <laughs> Oh, of course, yeah. Tony Goldwyn is. Yeah. So, and a great grandson of 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 the Goldwyn, I believe, isn't he, John? Yeah, Samuel Goldwyn, yeah. He, you know, the MGM, the Metro Goldwyn Mayor. He, his lineage goes back to the uh, to that Sam Goldwyn, who's who was a movie mogul. So yeah, I just, I just loved that this character. He dealt with sectarianism and the division and the separation between the different churches in this town. Uh, he dealt with. Uh, Sex versus love. You know, there's a woman who fell in love with him, who came on to him at one point, and instead of rebuking her or or taking her advances and doing going somewhere with it, he turned it into a religious experience for her that she went through, and right. it was really, really moving and really beautiful. And you know, his his intimacy, his physical closeness with people that he established. You know, the way he was so comfortable holding people and touching people, it was, you could feel it, couldn't you, John? Well, yeah, I think to me, what I got out of the movie was that 
uh, and this was a, was a theme throughout it. It wasn't what he did. It's what he didn't have to do. It's everything yeah. was so natural. It was like somebody would say, yes. you know, somebody of his, an adversary such as the, uh, the, the priest would come up to him and say, you did this. Uh, the bishop, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, the bishop. The bishop would, you know, comment about something. You're, you're creating a cult doing this or that. And, and when he yeah. got down to the specifics, you would find out that this guy didn't do anything. All he did was just act out his life and people respected what they saw and they felt they could, you know, they could relate or they could be a part of whatever he was doing. And the fact is that what he was doing was important, but what was even more important was the participation in the way that people related to each other as they were doing various things, such as building up a, building a church. Fixing a church uh, that was church. direct by a storm. Yeah, that was right. how he first arrived. Right. Can I help? Can I help? And then he did, and everyone felt his inspiration, and so many people from so many churches came to help rebuild that church, that Baptist church. And, right. you know, and then hanging the bell, uh, uh, one of the guys, a, a fellow had a terrible stutter, uh, who wanted to be a deacon, couldn't be, and so he's hanging the bell, and he fell, and he died, and, and uh, Joshua just couldn't let that happen, so when everybody was gone, he brought him back to life. So he performed a miracle, and it was so natural and so gorgeous to watch, and that guy ended up, you know, becoming a, a <laughs> what he wanted to become. He could speak, right. and he stopped stuttering. It was gorgeous. There's just the movie's filled with little things like that, you know, that just the light and it, people think it's a lightweight movie. It didn't get good reviews. It didn't get good good ratings. It got a terrible box office. Right. <laughs> I watched it twelve times. Yeah, I uh, yeah. To me, it was it's you know I think it's been categorized uh, as a Christian film, and when it's more than it it it, it doesn't have the bounds of religion in it. He went to every you know, church. Yeah, in that town, by the way, and and when you get done with it, although the uh, the analogy or the uh, it, it's supposed to be what if it, a lot of people say that this isn't the second coming of Christ, but this is the what if Christ, what if Christ yes. did come back? Um, yeah, what would so happen? What would lot, it look like? A, yeah, yeah, what would it look like? Uh, so, but but as you take a look at the actions of the individual, th there there is a non-religious aspect or uh, a you know, an institutionalized religion. Isn't oh, this did not much. feel. This did not feel like a Jesus or a Christian movie at all to me. Right, that's it. Okay. I mean, but the bad news is that that's the way that the critics, the movie critics, have, have looked at it, and so they have to. Carp right. they, they, yeah, they don't have. I, they don't have much choice. I guess I don't know. Uh, yeah, they, they have, have to. They put a star behind it. it. Yeah, they. Yeah, they got the cart, and that's uh, that. That I Back think. Back to segment itself, one. Back to segment one, it's ineffable. How are they going to write a review and express that? They're not. That's, that's, a that's good it. Point. Yeah, the, the, there's no hope. So, yeah, I think that that's the way that would go. Some of the interesting, fine little points that... Uh, if, now, I've read the book, too, that's behind it, and there's a mm -hmm. series of them, and they're, they're wonderful. They're really good. But one of the things in the book that's not obvious in the movie is the part where he goes to synagogue is, is a little more prolonged than what you see in the movie, and the reason they took note of him was they noticed when he prayed, he prayed in Aramaic, which is a, a more uh, earlier form of Hebrew, and which was spoken in his time. And uh, it's really beautiful uh, to, you know, see those scenes in the book, as opposed to in the movie. They didn't they cut him, like I said, they didn't have time to do them. But 
Yeah, it, it was really wonderful and lovely. And the things he did during the movie, you, you have to watch it. I, I, we can't really give that experience to you. You have to have it for yourself. It's it's worth. I think every moment you spend watching that movie is uh, whether you're you're whatever religion you're in doesn't matter. Now it helps, I think, to have a little bit of a, a, a Christian Judeo background because you're gonna some things are gonna mean a little more to you than others because you right. know the background. And how striking the things he does uh, is. He gets called to the Pope. Actually, he gets kind of turned in by the bishop as a, a cult leader and has to go to Rome. And he goes, wow, it'll be, it'll be nice to see Peter again. That's kind of the way oh. he looked at it, right? And yeah. so he, he didn't see the Pope as, as, as whatever his Italian name or, or whatever was. He saw him as, as Peter, his disciple. Uh, and but it was just so natural. It wasn't anything weird about it at all. And he kind of woke up to Peter inside the Pope, and that's how the movie ends. And whoa, yeah, yeah. There's not many, not many, not many movies like this. So I would say jump on this one if, if you're a lover of any kind of sacred experience or the ineffable or or even just religion. You get a kick out of it. Yeah, I think what happens here is it's a great, it's a great. Uh segue from uh from the, the baseball segment we did because it, it it just continues on with the idea that uh that religion or what you want to do in terms of explaining the unknown is a personal experience and that personal yeah. experience then you can then the way you conduct yourself just as a result of that experience is going to be what allows you to then exist within the community and fit in mm -hmm. and be a part of what like what uh, Josh was able to do, and that is to make the make the individual pieces work to the extent that they're great. They're, you know, the the uh, the whole is greater than the, the individual pieces, and that's that's I think what what uh, what's really good about this. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I'm I'm always intrigued myself by the uh, by taking a look at the cast, and uh, and you take a oh, look yeah, at the cast yeah. to start out with, and you say, well, gee, who are some of these characters? And then you kind of look a little bit in the back. It, what's going on? You say, "Oh yeah." Well, Tony, Tony uh, Goldwyn is a. Uh, if you took a look at, at his his resume and what he does and the hats he wears, you it, it's enough to make you tired because he's been the producer, director, and an actor, and quite often doing all three at once. So he has an incredible resume that goes far beyond an acting skill which was very well demonstrated in this movie that, that he played the role oh, yeah. effortlessly there was no pushing mm -hmm. there was no prodding he could just go through and do it uh i i would say that if you say well who's this guy well i i, I when i took a look at it the first thing i thought of is i thought of, of a movie called ghost that came out yes. back in the 90s of which he plays the bad guy in yes, it. and if you remember the bad guy in Ghost, that's the Patrick Swayze Demi Moore movie where she's able, where she, you know, she's able to see her uh, Patrick Swayze after he dies. Well, Tony Goodwin is the bad guy in the movie. I don't know if he shoots him or if he isn't. He's he's involved in it. Yeah, so that's is. the piece that I yeah he that that I remember. F. Murray Abram is one that's been an enormous oh. amount of movies. He's an Academy Award winner, so you know he's still probably the yeah he's the known. And it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. because the role he plays in this movie is his whole yes. stereotype. It's, it's, yes. it's quite similar. Uh, you know, yes, where he's, it is. A, he's a doubter. He, he's a doubter yes, of he um, um, Amadeus. And of course, he's a, uh, the a doubter of, uh, of Joshua. Joshua. 
Yeah. So, and yeah. he does an extremely good, good, good job. Now, the thing, here's a good example of one, though, that I really had to stretch to, to realize. And that is that guy who plays the stuttering, uh, fellow, uh, who is at the beginning of the movie and helps Joshua in building the church, the Baptist church. Mm-hmm. His background, if you, if, and I'm, Fugitive is, the Fugitive is one of my favorite movies. Well, oh yeah. Eddie Bo, Eddie Bo Smith. And the, he had a role in The Fugitive, and his role was that when they had the train crash, and uh, The Fugitive, Richard Kimball, played by uh, you know, Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford, as he is getting off that train, he is also getting off with a black guy, a big black guy. Guess who that big black guy was? Yes. That, yeah. Eddie. The guy from Joshua. From Joshua. <laughs> but I think that the, uh, another one that is probably... Has had more, made more movies than anybody. Is the guy who played the Pope, Giancarlo uh, Giannini. Uh, oh God, and, yeah. And, and, and I looked at that and I said, "Wait a minute, I know that guy," because back in this, the uh, the eighties, there was a, uh, a, a Italian female director by the name of Lena Wertmuller who made two movies. One of them called Seven Beauties, of which this guy, this Giancarlo, starred in and got an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. But more importantly, he made another movie called Swept Away. Uh, which was so good in that it was remade into an awful sequel or uh, remake uh, starring uh, Madonna. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah but he's riveting. He's, he's an incredible performer, whether yeah. he's in a romantic comedy, uh, a drama. Uh, it doesn't matter. He just has that gravitas when he needs it, that lightness when he needs it, and the lyrical. Well, he's Italian. He's a, if he's doing an English part, he's always going to have that accent, yeah. which is right. hot, very lyrical, and he uses it to his advantage, and his gestures and the way. And as a pope, he's perfect. Now, the last know. one though that that I think the character that I that I think is more compelling, other than Joshua, in the, is is Father Pat. Yes, played by Kurt Fuller, who. You know, he doesn't have a, a strong resume. You're not going to be able to, to all of a sudden, oh, that movie, this movie. But I found an interesting piece of trivia. And that was apparently, uh, Kurt Fuller is a, is a, was a very good friend of Harold Ramis. Uh, right. And Harold Ramis, um, actually, when he re- did Groundhog Day, he wrote the net, the, the, the part in the movie where Ned, what's his name? Ned Guyverson or the, the guy. Yeah, Needle Nose Ned. Needle Nose Ned. <laughs> That part yeah. was written for Kurt, but unfortunately, he wasn't able to, logistics and things didn't work out, and he wasn't able to do it. But that, he did that specifically for Kurt Fuller. So, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Great it, part. It, great part. Yeah, it's a great part, and it would be interesting to see. But Father Pat is, is really, he's kind of the guy who was, it, 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 at the beginning of the movie, he's, he's struggling with the Catholic religion and how he wants to feel that there should be some sort of free expression. Well, he is under the thumb of uh, of the bishop, and he then is able to during the movie. You you see the the biggest transition in his ability to to, to function and experience what he wants to experience comes out by the end of the movie. I, I like his transformation, the way it works. Yeah, I do too. He went good. kind of went to the next level with it. He wants to give his experience to the parishioners, and all his boss wants him to do is follow the rules. Right. Yeah. This is a lot about what I talked about earlier, is the difference between principles and rules. And if you're just preaching rules, no one wants to hear it. No one likes, everyone wants to be free. And so rules 
are, and for religion, religio, to tie back, to bind, you know, by its nature is, is somewhat about rules. But if you really take it all the way, it's about generalized principles by which the universe and loss and death and everything swirls around it like a, a black, uh, like things swirl around a black hole. And well, so, the, yeah. The thing Go is ahead, that John. when you said rules-based, uh, principles-based, I mean, any discipline, my, my life as an accountant and teaching yep. accounting for 35 years was, you know, I could, I could explain rules to the students, but rules don't always work. And when they don't nope. work, you have to fall back to principles. And what's important mm -hmm. when you learn any discipline is to be able to realize when the rules aren't going to work and then be able to apply the principles to come up with the answers or the decisions that you need to make as you have to, have to, to actually apply that, apply a rule or apply a principle. And I yeah. always felt that that was important in, in whatever you're looking at. I mean, here we are, we're looking at, at religion. And the fact is, you know, yes, there are going to be times when there are going to be rules. But the basis and the foundation of those rules is the principle. And if you don't understand the principles, you're not going to be able to determine whether to apply rules or principles when you are confronted with a situation or a problem. Yeah. So, yeah, when the Catholic Church is the best candidate for this problem because, you know, they're in a modern era. Uh, they have trouble with uh, uh, not recognizing the role of women. They have trouble with pedophilia, obviously, and these frustrated, sexually frustrated, weird men that they're taking into the priesthood. And, you know, they've got a lot of stuff to deal with. And so what has to happen, they have to go back to core principles and make, in, in essence, redefine the rules in a different right. way, because these, these rules aren't working. <laughs> so, you know, the, the other thing, a couple other pieces I'd like to bring up, there is a, the, the music is very good. I mean, the overall soundtrack, yeah. the background music is good. But in addition to that, they also feature in, within a movie a little concert and a religious uh, rock band by the name of Third Day is in it. And I'm not what you call a guy who knows much about religious rock music other than a little bit, uh, you know, that you kind of run into tangentially as you look at other things. But apparently this Third Day, they've, they've had 30, 27 or plus uh, number one hits on the religious rock uh, uh, yeah. you know, list of, of and it, and they've sold over seven million albums, so they're not exactly a, a garage band here. They're they're no. well known, and um, they do they do a very good job. I felt uh, just a, another little piece oh yeah, of the movie good. Um, yeah, it's a nice you you experience so many different things about so many facets of religious life in this movie in a very short period of time, and it's quite a trick if you think about it what they did. Right, I mean, it's a real trick. The other thing, cool. a couple other things that we you've already mentioned, Jerry, about the reception. Now, this thing was pan. I mean, pretty well beat up by the limited number of critics. You get a small sample size because this this movie, if it hit this, it hit the big screens. It wasn't for very long, um, and so as a result, you 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 take a look at the the thirty four, thirty five uh, critics that look at it through Rotten Tomatoes, and there's just not much there. I mean, there's just a couple of yeah. cities that that really in addition to the fact there seems to be sort of a uh, a cynic uh, view of it because it's, like we said before, categorized more as a Christian film. It's much broader than that. So you're oh, yeah. Bad... I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these critics didn't even watch the whole movie. <laughs> it's I'm, quite I'm really... possible. I have Very no possible. Well, it's, not a short, it's not a short movie. And, no, and, uh, it's an hour and it's it a little over it... an hour. 
Yeah, it's an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. But the point is that it doesn't like, it's not an action movie. It's, there's not, it, it's, it's got a pace and it's got a tone that is serene. It's, and it's, but there, if you, if you really are watching and listening, they're, they're moving at an incredible rate. They're going through issues and problems and resolving them in, in really meaningful ways, uh, at a breakneck pace, I think. So I think they got a tremendous amount done in the movie. And I would argue that, that it's, it's not only moving emotionally, but it's moving in terms of the plot. Well, if you so, take a look at the know. user reviews, you're going to get a lot better perspective. Oh, yeah. Unlike if you look at IMDb and their user reviews, there's a lot of 10s, 9s, 8s. And I guess, of course, you're going to run into the cynics in the user reviews. So the, the, the average for the reviews might not be that great. It might be more like 6.8 or 7, but there are a lot of people like it. So if you're interested in pursuing this uh, and you want to get a, you feel some comfort that, yeah, this is worth my while, I think you can get a, a, a good idea of what's, what, uh, what's reflected or what people think about it in that, oh, yeah. in that regard. The, but the other thing that just blows my mind is that I have trouble actually figuring out where does this... I mean, this is a movie where I have access to it because I went to Amazon, I paid a buck ninety nine, and I, I watched it. But I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for it to come up on TV uh, nope. Obviously, it's a 2002 movie. It had uh, it cost nine million dollars. They made less than a million on the on the on the you know big screen receipts. Uh, I, but I I really have trouble thinking where does it fit within the vast number of network stuff. I mean, this is not a Hallmark movie. Well, I don't know why not it's, though. It's too much religion. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. You're right. But it certainly could be yeah, a lifetime it, it, movie, it couldn't is it? to some extent. I, I, I would, uh, yeah, you're right. It could, it, you could probably pigeonhole it into it. It doesn't quite fit, though. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so that's part I watch of the it. challenge. I watch it every Christmas. I'm going to watch it this Christmas. Hey, look. So yeah, yeah. watch it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to to knock it. I'm just trying I, to say I, I that I know you're not. But that you're you you've got to. You're gonna if you're gonna watch this, you're probably gonna have to you know go to Amazon download or it. Netflix stream and it. download it, stream it in order to see it. Is all I'm saying. That's a pity because I really think that yeah. you know it's right up there with all the great Christmas movies, and you can watch it any time of year. But I think particularly at Christmas or any kind of where any high holiday. It's a good, it's a good movie to watch. Yeah. I mean, it it deals with, you know, the, the core things, the traps that people fall into in their minds and their hearts with regard to each other, divisions between people. I mean, this season, given what's going on in politics and what we're about to talk about in a few minutes, oh. I think this this movie is vital. You know, if it, understanding the principles of Christianity are more important in Alabama right now today than they ever have been, in my opinion. Oh, dear. I mean, as we take a look and conclude our movie segment, and we've had two very good segments that, that relate to the, the, the field with the positive aspects of religion, all of a sudden we go to fake news, and we're confronted with what has got to be some of the worst aspects of, of organized religion, and a, a bizarre example which is it leaves you in a state of disbelief. As you yes. listen to a pastor from a Baptist church talk about Roy Moore, 
you just kind of scratch your set head and I'm sure if, if you can kind of give the background as to how this all popped up and and, and yeah and the, the Mark Burns the pastor has got I guess a, a history of, of some of this craziness but uh, why yeah don't you give some background yeah he does he's a, a he's a, a pray for pay kind of uh, uh, preacher and I think he'd like to break into the televangelist uh, kind of area but and this is how he's doing it he's appearing on these news shows. And just saying the most, you know, he's not, he doesn't look like he's trying to shock. He looks like he's trying to defend his position, but it's hard to to believe. Now, I first saw him on a show with uh, uh, the AM Joy show, and uh, I forget Joy's last name, but she's on MSNBC. Uh, she's in the lineup there, and she's great. She's a good interviewer. She does her work. She keeps her composure, but uh, she has this guy on. And along with some other people on a panel to talk about the situation with Roy Moore and how the election's going down there and, and what's going to happen. You know, this guy's got a terrible list of things that he has done that aren't really much in dispute. The women who've come forward uh, almost serendipitously, the, there was a crew down there to cover the election and other aspects of the election, certainly not these sex, sex scandals. And in the process, they heard whisperings that Roy Moore had a checkered past and present as regards to the opposite sex and that they got curious and they started running into people. They weren't like looking for them. They started running into them. And before they knew it, they had a, a dozen women uh, who reported behavior on the part of Roy Moore that was just unacceptable. A 14-year-old girl kind of led the charge. She's a woman now, but she was 14 years old. And he totally made inappropriate sexual advances toward her. Another girl, you know, after work, he gets, gets her in his car in, in a secret kind of spot outside her work where he traps her in the car and she can't get out. And, you know, he wants, he wants her to give him a blowjob, for Christ's sake. And he's pushing his head down into his lap and all kinds of shit. And this is not good. And these women are just, like, totally credible. Yeah. I mean, they have no reason to uh, uh, make this shit up, and they didn't collaborate, and they weren't coached or any of that stuff. It's obvious. So, you know, everyone believes them pretty much, except there's this hardcore group of people that believe in Roy Moore no matter what, and they use the most bizarre ways of defending him. Everything from these people are lying, and Democrats made this up, uh, to the other end of the spectrum, which is Mark Burns, who says. Uh, there's nothing wrong with his behavior and, and starts using b biblical references to it and, and that this has nothing whatsoever to do with, with morality somehow. He tries to turn everything on its head. And Joy, just at one point during the interview, just explodes. Aren't yeah. you a pastor? Aren't you a moral authority? What are you saying here? And he tries to wiggle out of it, but she had him in, in, in the trap, man. And he looked like a total idiot, but he just kept going with it, and he's appeared on, you know, more than one show with this same bunch of bullshit, and it's maddening. And the crazy part is, there's a large number of people there who go along with it. And right now, the the race is at heat. No one knows, statistically, who's in front, and it could very well happen that he gets elected. And it'll be because of the Christian community in Alabama has backed him so hard, and so many pastors have backed him. They are using, like I said, a combination of, of 
biblical stories where where men lay with younger women or even their daughters to justify this. And uh, I, the quote I, that uh, that the uh, pastor Mark Burns makes is morality wasn't the only isn't the only quality that makes a good leader. It's like you know, and, and of course, uh, her name is by the way R E I D Joyce Reed. Uh, Joy oh. Reed, excuse me, and she, yeah. she, and her point being that look, there's there has to be a framework, there has to be a foundation upon which leaders, and this isn't like you 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 got six qualities, and well, by the way, if you if you got five out of six, you're okay. There's, there's got to no. be a basic, you know, and and morality principles, principles, yeah, there's gotta right? Be, there's got to be, yeah, you you got to have a, a basic. Principle, These aren't rules, moral principles. They're principles, yeah. right? So yeah. it isn't a checklist here of which you've got to get five out of six. There's certain things no. you've got to have, and uh, <laughs> and, and wow, I mean, this is yeah, it's he's a destroying. pedophile. He's a pedophile. Come on, that's how he met oh. his wife, and his wife defends him. Boy, does yeah. she defend him? She's Ooh. his best defense. Oh. Yeah, she gets the and ladies geez. together and uh, mm -hmm. and and really sings this, you know, and drinks the Kool Aid or something. I don't know what. I don't know what that is. And then there's the robo calls. Remember the robo call? Yeah. There. There's a Judge Roy Moore robocall that's going around uh, Alabama where a guy identifies himself as Bernie Bernstein. <laughs> and he's from New York. And he's got the New York accent. And, and uh, so they're trying to portray this guy doing the robocall as uh, a Jewish New Yorker. You know, in other words, they're, they're doing what, the number one thing they can do to get people listening to this robocall disgusted. And he's saying, I I'm looking for women. Uh, who are this age, 55 to 57, who may have had contact with Roy Moore. We don't need to verify these accounts. We just need to know about them, and we want to list them in a document uh, and release it. So could you help us? And, of course, it's total bullshit. This, this is made up. This is, this is the worst of gaslighting or whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's the worst ever. Like what they did to Kerry, uh, John Kerry. Remember yeah. with his Vietnam yeah. record, totally right. turned that on its head, and that's exactly what they're doing here with this. Now, I, people laugh about it up north, but I think it's going over big down south in Alabama. It'll be interesting as the this election, uh, you know, approaches to see exactly uh, how far this goes and if it's going to have the the, the the incredible dismal result of, of him winning. That would be really really scary. Well, I don't think it'd be scary as much as troublesome uh, for the Republicans because they're going to throw him out of the Senate. They've already said they would. So if he makes it, they're they're going to toss him out of the Senate. And this is just going to th throw gasoline on the fire down in the South because the the distance between the liberal elites and the Republican elites, which are all the same to people in Alabama, uh, is just going to get greater and greater. And so we're we're building up a fire in certain parts of the country, and it's not just the South, it's other parts of the country too, where people feel unrepresented and dispossessed, and they are angry, and that's why we got Donald Trump, and that's why a lot of other things, weird things are happening, and if we don't address this, and if some of these politicians don't start waking up, and I'm including Democrats and Republicans, we're going to have some serious problems on our hands. They have to start behaving like uh, legislators and quit doing whatever this is they think they're doing, because yeah. I don't think it's working. Nope. So yeah, this is just a, a an extreme 
mind-boggling, bizarre example of religion at its worst. Yeah, and, and sectarianism, uh, local sectarianism, cultural, culture-based sectarianism, it's, it's uh, almost based completely on negatives. It's not based on any positives. Uh, Yankees, uh, liberals, elites, you know, their division, they're using all these things. And what they're doing, they're bringing in uh, your worst nightmares as, as substitutes for those things. You know, in order to counteract what's going on in Washington, we're going to send Roy Moore. He can, he can wake him up. He carries a gun and, and displays it when he gives a speech. Uh, you know, he, he does all these outrageous things. He's been thrown off oh, of the Alabama Supreme Court twice. You know, for God's sakes. What are we doing here? Okay, I, I think I've had enough of this guy. I'm done with it, too. Hey, we had the first two segments were certainly inspiring. Yes. I loved it. I love that stuff. The, the book. The book, John. Good book. I love that okay. book. All good. All good. Yeah. Joshua. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No pants. So it's a good day. I'm going to focus on that. Sounds good. Sorry, yeah, I got buddy. a little football to watch today, and, uh, and I'll be talking to you tomorrow, then. Looking forward to it. You bet. Talk to you then. Okay.